When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, July 28th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. At the top, I, I'm so excited for our next Patreon episode that we're going to record in 45 <laughs> minutes that I almost can't focus on this episode, Rebecca. <laughs> Me... Two and what that's going to be is, I guess, a secret for. Is it a secret? Why? why is it, it doesn't have to be. Well, we're t- we've been kind of making this, things a secret. Yeah, but see, now we need to get people to sign up because, <laughs> well, this is part of the thing. <laughs> to have a Patreon, it means it you is. want people to sign up, and part of it is making sure that they know about what they're missing if you're that's not a true. member. That's right? true. Yeah. So up currently, recently, bonus episodes included an Ask Us Anything that was super fun. Then last week, we did a book club conversation about the new Gabrielle Zevin novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And the thing we're recording today is a bookish mer- version of F. Mary Kill mm-hmm. that is called what? Collect, Borrow, Remainder? Yes, Collect, Borrow, Remainder I I've come up with my alternate <laughs> title. The, yes. And I think we have taunted each other. You, you DM'd me first as I was finishing my mm-hmm. list of... Uh, sets for you of like this is constructed to cause maximal pain. it is it is though i came up with my last one i realized is the like a, a hydra of a sophie's choice for me so we'll do that I've, i'll okay. i'll offer myself on the, on the gallows for the last one that i came up with that is causing me so much pain that my whole world is sort of about it for for the time being but we're very much looking forward to it i think it was one when we did the um idea episode uh, mm-hmm. As an episode, which is very meta, the one that most people like were like, ooh, <laughs> ooh. <laughs> I think if it goes well, we could open it up for Patreon listeners yes. to submit their own sets for us. That's that right. would be really yeah. fun. Yeah, your own. What what what? Um, collect, borrow, <laughs> remainder would cause you the most existential dread. So that'll be up uh, early next week, I think Tuesday. And then as always, there'll be mm-hmm. an ad-free version of this show that goes up on Friday. You get a little bit, um, get a little earlier there and that's it patreon.com slash book riot podcast link in the show notes um one other housekeeping thing before we take our first break and then get into other feedback and news still taking applications for an editorial ops associate and for those of you who have applied with some some sly or otherwise not sly references to us (laughs) talking about say a popular social video um, platform we see you and we appreciate that and that is fine we We don't mind the shots We can take it. This is a really great uh, entry level type position. If you are a person who is very good at holding the clipboard for a project, likes to be the one who's like flipping the levers, helping keep the lights on. Uh, We've talked about this spot on a a previous episode, but just as a refresher, you know, our editorial team is the one who make all the content and editorial ops are the ones that make sure all that content mm-hmm. can get out into the world. They maintain the back end of, you know, some of the WordPress functioning. They make sure all of the podcasts get published. They're doing quality assurance on all of our newsletters. They're deeply involved, integral. We can't do this stuff without them. 
Also, if you're looking to change careers, we are very friendly to, you know, take and former booksellers, former librarians, people looking for, I don't know, a flexible, cool workplace where you can work from home, or we've got an office in Portland, Oregon, one in Vancouver, uh, Canada, lots of great benefits you can check out. So the listing will be linked in the show notes. We are not involved directly in the hiring of this position, so neither of us can help you. All the info that you need is in that listing. Uh, Just FYI, like questions that come in by email or social media to anybody on staff will go unanswered because everything you need to know is right there. But we, you know, love hiring folks that are already familiar with what we're doing here at Book Riot. So if you're listening and you are looking for something new or you know somebody that you think might be a good fit for this, take a look at that listing and jump in. The applications are open until August 8th. And if, you know, you, you took this job or got this job, you would be doing things like putting in the ad spot, which we're going to take a break for, for a sponsor right now. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Okay, listener feedback. Um, A couple comments about us talking the Lord of the Rings House of the Dragon showdown that Mm. we're getting here really in a month or so. I think the first one comes out August 21st. I think House of the Dragon premieres first. And then, and then The Lord of the Rings is September 2nd. It might be transposed. Anyway, immaterial difference at this point. A um, couple people, you know, taking sides. This is going to be bigger than this. The one I wanted to address is someone's like, "Why? I can't believe you didn't talk about The Witcher or Wheel of Time and talk about big streaming fantasy. And I think it's actually kind of worth, I, I don't 
care about defending necessarily live podcasting its own thing. But first of all, The Witcher is not primarily a book property. I know there's a book, not primarily a book property, so it's kind of beyond what we tend to talk about here. The Wheel of Time is a book. And um, Jen and I did our reactions to the first few episodes on episode of SFF, yeah. And I think the show's pretty good. The thing about Wheel of Time is it is not even, uh, there's not even like a pretense that it's not, we want more Tolkien, Robert George, like, and we want more <laughs> of this. And that's fine. It's not a knockoff really, yeah. but it's in the spirit, it's in the genre. It's like Tolkien, but more so. So it's just, it's a it's not a diet version of it. It's a it's a it's a progeny of it. It's not as interesting. I don't think it's nearly as good or deep. It's also not the first. And here's the other thing. We already have a season of this, and I think it did well. I think they've already they've already greenlit two more seasons. But if Rings of Power or House of the Dragon only do what Wheel of Times did has done in terms of cultural impact and streaming and numbers, the studios behind them will be disappointed. They just will be, right? Yes. They will. I think the the big reason that neither of those even came to mind when we were talking about this is both it's both a difference of degree and kind. Mm-hmm. Degree in that Witcher and Wheel of Time were big streaming, but but big. Like and what they're aiming for, what HBO is aiming for with House of the Dragon, what Amazon is aiming for with whatever the Lord of the Rings prequel is called. I can't Rings remember. Of power. The Ring of Rings of Power. Yeah. Um is like the biggest, like to be the biggest thing that has happened and to have them as flagship properties you know netflix is almost too big to have any kind of flagship property though arguably if they have one right now it's stranger things and squid game wheel of time i don't think anybody expected to be a flagship property of any kind so different kinds of properties but even if you were thinking about them as the same kind of thing they're much lower on the spectrum Mm -hmm. of bigness the spectrum of bigness show title um for for what these adaptations are doing in terms of landing with fans, but also how they contribute to like their relative contributions to the ecosystem that they're in on those streaming services. Um, speaking of um, House of the Dragon, I think I'm going to read the book it's based on as my plane read over the next couple oh. of weeks. I, I've been wondering, like yeah, right? I, I like this. It's 800 pages on my Kindle, which in a lot of the discourse about George, I love you, George. I'm pulling for you. I really want this all to work out. I, re- I really am. He wrote an 800 book in the middle of all this about the prequel to stuff that's happening in books in the series. So God love him. He really w- dives into this stuff and cares about it. And I can read Martin now. If I read this book, I don't transgress O'Neill's razor then because it's a mm. self-contained history of this one particular part of the game of the Westerosian universe. So I can get a taste of Martin without dipping into the book series and everything that's going to do to me. Cause I will read them all and be upset that there's not one coming out and it's been 12 years. And what are we doing here to myself? Let's protect our feelings, Jeffrey. So here we go. So go ahead. I think I misunderstood last week. I thought that you had read all of the extant uh, game of Thrones books. Oh no, the show. no, you've, just the you've, show. You've only watch the show. Just the okay. show. And I only watch it when it was done. Right. Okay. Or I think I, no, I, I only watched it every, after everything came out and I didn't have to be a part of the hype cycle. And I was watching I on HBO and whatever in the middle of the night while I was taking care of <laughs> Rowan sick and stuff like that and gone to it one summer. So I don't have any experience with the book because this is exactly the reason O'Neill's reason exists. It is the reason this is exists because this is what can happen to you. Um, and But this one, I, I've always wanted to see what the prose is like. Apparently this one's a little bit different than the main storylines. Mm. It's 
whatever. I, I don't really care. But also, it'll be fun to do the thing where I get to watch the show. Because I'm into the show. I'm excited for the show. I think I'm more into Thrones right now for whatever reason than the Tolkien. And maybe, maybe it's just I've watched the show relatively recently, so it feels fresher in my mind. Um, it's also a little bit more adult for all, all that entails good and bad, frankly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what I'm going to be doing over the next uh, couple of weeks. But uh, George also recently gave another update, as he does from time oh, to he time. Did? Yeah. I missed it. Uh, well, it's kind of the, the same song um, played by the same band of I'm working on it, I'm trying <laughs> real hard, things are going on. But he's also intimately involved in the making of House of the Dragon, and it is what it is. But I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. And I, I do feel right now like if I had to be- back one of these dragons, I, I'm picking <laughs> the Martin reverse. Rather than, for, I don't know why, just my, my my finger into the cultural wind. That doesn't sound right. I don't like that at all. <laughs> um, just feels like the wind is blowing towards Westeros rather than Middle mm-hmm. Earth for me. I agree with that. I was listening to... I think it was the guys on the watch last week talking about this and or about all the stuff around mm. what's going on with House of the Dragon and they were mentioning Rings of Power and one of them pointed out something that I think really is pertinent here that HBO like has it dialed in. They know how to develop TV. They know what they're about. It's like a pretty not a formula but like a pretty rigorous process that shows go through in development mm. and they know what their viewers like like since really the sopranos if you watch a lot of tv you can kind of watch a trailer for something and be like oh that's an hbo show and then you know the little (laughs) hbo thing comes up and you know what the flavor is going to be and i just have a lot more faith in their in hbo's tv development than i do in amazon's Uh, so for that reason alone but also i think the interest in game of thrones is fresher than lord of the rings is it is more adult um and those are i think some of the characters and storylines are are more connected than what you are than what it seems like you're going to get in rings of power which is really just like oh you like elves and orcs come hang out in this other place for a while Mm -hmm. like we've got another place where you can see some of those creatures but none of these are characters that you're going to be familiar with i think there's just a lot more strategy that makes sense to me behind what hbo has done um speaking of amazon prime this is now we're diverting from book talk to tv talk for sure did you see the trailer for the league of their own tv show did you catch that yeah how are you feeling Uh about that i'm not so sure i need this i was excited for this but i was like i'm not i don't know i mean maybe i'm an old (laughs) fuddy-duddy but i was like huh i it feels like it should be more interesting to me as a I've fan been of the, on the movie. Same, I think I'm on the same journey that you're on with that. When it first got announced, I was like, oh, that sounds really fun. And, you know, Darcy Carden is wonderful. Some of the other actors in the cast are really wonderful. I think it would be fun to watch. The first League of Their Own just lives in yeah. my soul as a thing I'm going to love forever and ever. So I didn't feel the need for a reboot. I have read a couple of early reviews that are like, this really leans into, you know, queer storylines mm-hmm. and better representation. And it does all the things that we want TV to do in 2022 that we weren't thinking about in a big mainstream way when A League of Their Own was made in, I think, the late 80s. So I'm, I think I'm curious. I will probably watch the first couple yeah. and go from there but i don't currently have a sense of like oh yeah i'm going to spend a whole weekend watching all of those or taking them down in one gulp or having it be a thing i look forward to every week i'm not sure what their rollout schedule is but yeah I, i'm on the like we'll give it a shot 
but I'm not just, you know, it's not bated breath over here. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Okay, let's get into the, you know, get, get into stories here. Um, on the big, I don't know, the Utah State Board of Education book ban policy on the board level is happening everywhere. Um, there's mm-hmm. another one here. We'll link in the show notes. I don't want to dwell on this too much, Rebecca, because I don't really have anything else to yeah. say except some of these things that are happening are precursors. I think to future moves, and it's interesting to pay attention to those. You have an exclamation point and a um, question mark by the next story. Do we need to take a trip? It's we. I get the broom out. I need to. Where? How's methodology? It's dusty over. Hold on. Let me get it. Let me go. We haven't been there in a while. Okay, I gotta get the cobwebs off method. Okay, here we go. Gotta call Kyle and get some approval for our foley work here. It's a theater of the mind, Rebecca. It's theater of the mind. Half of all Canadians read a book a week, according to this publisher's weekly survey from BookNet Canada. Uh, Did you pick up anything in methodology? Because this is a hell of a number, if this is true. (laughs) It really is. The only thing that raised my eyebrows about methodology, because they don't explain the methodology, really, is that the survey covered 1,282 Canadians. And I have questions about whether that is a large enough sample to be representative. But it's a pretty big sample. Like, I want to know where these people came there from. There you go. <laughs> like, Did you interview them at a bookstore? Of... <laughs> right. right. What part of Canada are they from? <laughs> What's their education and income level? How much, so therefore, how much leisure time do they have? Like, the survey found that 33% of Canadians reported having read a book daily, while half of Canadians read at least one book per week last year. And this was unchanged from this same study in 2020. Um, at least 80 Canadian, 80% of Canadians had read or listened to a book in the previous year. And I believe that's higher than the American percentage, but I did not pull up the Pew study. I, I think the Pew study is around like two thirds of Americans have read a book in the previous year um, and a lot of print going on there of the ones who had read a book 94% had read at least a book in one book in print 64% had read a book that was an ebook and 45% had listened to an audiobook so we're kind of the same thing there where audio has a lot of room to ascend still but i just had a like who who are these magical canadians <laughs> it's I, like i download the pdf I and i don't see anything <laughs> I'm not a professional data scientist. I know maybe you're all confused out there about what we do here for a living. Um, survey methodology. A thousand respondents identified as readers. 282 were screened for not having read or listened to a book. So they did 1282 and a thousand of those said that read or listened to at least a few times in the past year. It was online. 18 years of older, located throughout Canada and representative of the Canadian population based on age, gender, oh. and geographical region. Oh. Online servers are limited to those with internet access. So that might be interesting. Mm-hmm. Internet mm-hmm. access where? At home? At right. school? Are we... At anywhere you know, at all? Right. Is it, because it's different than if it's a phone survey or some other kind of survey. Right. Um, the data is unweighted to represent the behaviors and habits of individual Canadians. I don't know what that means unweighted Mm. to represent the behaviors and habits of how do you how do you weight or unweight to represent individual behavior i'm confused maybe someone out there knows this we'll link in the show notes and you can i don't know if you're smarter about this than i can weirdly even though half of these people apparently read a whole book a week it's only the eighth most popular thing they do with their leisure time 
after watching crap, <laughs> I guess is one, cooking, <laughs> listening to music, browsing social media and the web, spending time with family, shopping, exercising, working out, then reading or listening to books, then listening to radio shows, which is huh. two percentage points. I mean, and then number 10 is playing video games. Color me skeptical, I guess. It just seems like, and then half of them have read a book, averaged a book a week. I don't understand. I just don't see. Maybe someone, the Canadians can tell us that there's, it's cold, <laughs> it's dark. No, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I, I mean, maybe the not. story that, yeah, the story my brain immediately offered up was like, well, the news cycle is a lot calmer up there. Yeah, maybe. Um, they also borrow more than they buy, I thought was interesting mm-hmm. across the board. Um, I'm sorry. Ebooks and audiobooks, they borrow more than they buy. I think that's because the digital apps are easy to use. That's kind of mm-hmm. how I am. Um, there's a lot there. So, wow, good job, Canada, if that's true. If, the, if this is representative and yeah. there's not some weird flaw of like, this got, this got, maybe this got emailed around the librarian listserv because you could get free stuff because they were incentivized to take it. It doesn't say what the people got, but there was some sort of incentive you got. So like, I'm wondering, is it like a $5, $5 coupon to Indigo bookstores? I mean, that's kind of thing could matter. Or is this a... Like when we do reader surveys, we put them, one of the places that we put them so that we can get people to complete them is in a pop-up on the homepage that's like, hey, complete this survey and you'll be entered to win like $200 to your favorite bookstore yes. or whatever. So like, what's the organization that was conducting this and where did they find these people mm-hmm. on the internet? Like if, they're, if, if there's a Canadian version of Book Riot or something and that's the place they were recruiting them from or if it was from something similar. I have many questions. I kind of want this to be true, I want it to be true that the folks up in Canada are spending their time averaging a book a week. That's impressive. And then I want them to tell me how they're doing it. And what podcasts are they listening to? Because I got who are the po- Canadian book podcasters servicing the, you know, millions of Canadians cranking out 52 a, per annum of, of books? Uh, fascinating to question. see. So one of the more surprising surveys to come across our transom in quite some time i would say yeah um speaking of unsurprising things um i guess did you expect more from pamela paul here rebecca you you have a take and i I know what you're doing because you're like and i think we're of the same piece here but well let's tell the people what the take is and we can do a meta discussion about it yeah so in the last couple of months pamela paul transitioned from or several months i guess transitioned from being the editor of the new york times book review section to being one of the New York Times op-ed writers uh, for their specifically for the opinion section of the paper. And she had a piece on July 24th called There's More Than One Way to Ban a Book, which takes the position that, to paraphrase it, publishing is becoming wimpy and afraid of upsetting people and they're not publishing things that are risky like right-wing propaganda. They should be brave enough to do it because freedom of speech, something, something. Um, I don't know. Pamela Paul did a lot of interesting things at the New York Times Book Review. She expanded coverage. She expanded representation of both the types of writers and identities that were represented. Also the genres that were represented. So I didn't expect Pamela Paul to come out with like a super left wing stance, but I did not. I let me. I am disappointed to see this. This is a bad take and it's a lazy take. And I'm tired of professional people who live in the world of books 
and get paid to do that either fundamentally misunderstanding what censorship is or willfully ignoring what censorship is and isn't to make a case like this. Yeah, I'm of the same kind of piece. I think this is one of those positions now that's kind of an easy, it's kind of an easy machine gun nest to take up if you're Mm -hmm. a left-wing person by nature. And you can sort of like take up like, well, I'm not as, I don't know. It's like a contrarian within the left kind of a take at this point right now to say, well, the actual, almost a devil advocate sort of position. I, I, I can't believe, no, I can't believe, I continue to be frustrated that there is a kind of bad faith reading of self-censorship is maybe we just don't want to print these goddamn books. Maybe right. that's what this is really about I, because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of ideas I could have and say that I don't want to say because I don't want to say them. Is that self-censorship? Because it's sort <laughs> of, it's, it's, it's suggesting here I, that publishing wants to publish Alex Jones or whatever else it might be. I guess she uses the example of Pence, but by the way, bad example because if that book's going to happen, it hasn't gone anywhere yeah. to our knowledge. And so, you know, and then is this a discussion that's being happened within the publishing houses or is Hachette, just to pick one, not doing a bunch of stuff they would like to be doing and they honestly believe in has a moral and ethical value and a financial one, not, not for nothing, and they're not doing it because of scared because they're cowards. I guess, I guess that's the idea is like, there I are guess, all these people that would be, we'd be, they'd be publishing books that aren't getting published because they're afraid of the Twitter, whatever's saying things about them and them getting fired or just not wanting to deal with it or what. Right. I mean, that's kind of the position. Yeah. It's, I think it's a real straw man. Like, first of all, most of the big publishing houses, I actually think all of the big five have at least one imprint yeah. that is dedicated to like right wing conservative political writing. And I do want to make a distinction there. Like, you know, we support a range of healthy political discourse. Mm -hmm. Nobody on this podcast is arguing that like a Republican should never publish a book. That is not what we're saying. I think what's really going on in publishing is like what's going on in other places, a recognition that platforms and publishers do bear moral and ethical responsibility for the outcomes like for the sequelae of the material that they put into the world and promote. And if you don't want to be responsible for like, oh, I helped promote rhetoric that people cited when they were storming the Capitol on January 6th or something like that. Now, folks are thinking about that in a different way. There's a cost benefit analysis that publishers are doing when they're deciding, are we going to publish this book or not? In the same way as like Spotify deciding if they're going to keep Joe Rogan on Mm. or not, or a radio station deciding back in the day if they were going to keep Rush Limbaugh. Verizon just let one American news network go. That's not censorship either. They are deciding, is it worth it? And I believe that if they thought they had some, you know, right wing person who it was who was going to make a ton of money and it was going to be net good for the company because of the ton of money and they were willing to take whatever flack came their way because of the ton of money or because that person had a story to tell that they believed was important for the American public to have access to. They would do that. A lot of that, a lot of it is just stuff that doesn't need to be out there. And I did understand when Dana Kennedy stood behind, we are publishing Mike Pence's memoir because here is a person who was the vice president during a very consequential presidency that ended with all kinds of controversy. And he witnessed some things and he has a story to tell and he's going to be running for president. And we 
a good, we should have access to information about this person. That is, I, I understand this argument. Okay. I don't think that this conversation that Pamela Paul is imagining is really happening. If you're listening to this and you work in a publishing yeah. house and you're like, oh, actually, we have had a bunch of editorial meetings about books that we wish we could publish, but it'll make people mad and we just don't want to do that. I would like to know that, you know, we'll keep you anonymous, little birdies. But I just suspect that this is one of those things that makes a really nice hot take, especially if you're trying to establish yourself as not so liberal as all the other Mm -hmm. liberals or not so extreme as all the other left wingers or whatever. But we've been doing this a long time. We know some folks in publishing. I haven't heard anything about someone being like, you know, we really wanted to do this book. We believed in it and believed that the message was important. And so we're just canceling it because we don't feel like dealing with the flack. Like there's how the math is changing. The Woody Allen one, I think is a great example mm-hmm. of, do you want to be aligned with having put millions of dollars in the pocket of a person who has done the kinds of things that we know Woody Allen to have done? Like notably, there's not a big Harvey Weinstein memoir getting shopped around. Yeah. And that math shifting is just, I think is a sign of the times. And I read it as a sign of progress that it's not just a pure, utilitarian calculus about this thing will make us money and we can defend it because freedom of speech like none of this is about freedom of speech the the government is not telling publishers what they can and cannot put into the world no one has a right to have their book published and a business deciding to publish something or not is that business's prerogative this is just it's just bad it's a bad it's also (laughs) i I think centers the import of book publishing in historical meta discourse in a way that's just not representative. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's never been easier to get your quote unquote book out there. You have a website and a PDF. Let's, you, you can get your book out there. I mean, people have been doing this since Thomas Paine common sense and, and before right. like, so this idea that you need to have a book deal to get the word out, I think, I think is a little bit of goalpost moving. Cause what a publisher does mm-hmm especially when we're talking nonfiction, this is a secret that people that don't do books really know. They're not making the book. They're buying the manuscript, especially, you know, nonfiction, mm-hmm. like maybe there's a spec, but they're not doing, they're not subsidizing the reporting. They're not doing any fact checking. So what value add to Mike Pence's book are they really doing? Well, in this case, Kennedy's like, we're going to fact check this, which is unusual for a book like this. So right. I think there is a mm-hmm. value add there, but most of like the Jared Kushner memoirs or wherever you get it from American Marxism or the Bill O'Reilly books or whatever, they're printing those, copy editing them, editing them for clarity, but they're not truth seeking devices that no more than if they were being printed as PDFs really. So I, I kind of find the, what about the ideas piece to be less compelling and then should mm-hmm. a publisher can a publisher be quote unquote neutral in we're going to put out whatever or within r- limits and both sides out of both sides of our mouth or whatever we feel like? Because I think we also are still in the shadow of you can't be neutral. Like increasingly this idea mm-hmm. has fallen through that every decision you make as a person in the world has a political consequence and political consequences have real world consequences. And if you're not doing some moral algebra about do I want to live in the world where this book is more or less influential as a publisher, then what are you doing? I, I, that's, yeah. I don't, I don't see how that's can be impossible. And is the publishing world any more left leaning than it was in 1972? I also find that very hard to believe as well, frankly. I, I agree with all of that. And I think 
it's important also this piece and Pamela Paul's from the world of books so of course but it really centers book publishing period as critical to the exchange of information and if you have a big idea that you want to get out into the world the like your best bet right now is TikTok or podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> You're like more people are engaging with social media and listening to podcasts than are reading books. And there's a lot of opportunity there as well. So it, I think it's overblown in its pearl clutching about a straw man and ignores the truth that books and reading have always been political Mm -hmm. there has always been a political and personal consequence to the material that publishers and platforms put out into the world there you know there were moral consequences to what facebook allowed people to do well before facebook acknowledged any of that same with twitter and we are shining a brighter light on that as a society right now because we've experienced some really significant painful dangerous consequences of platforms trying to be neutral and that's a false neutrality it's never been true it's never been true that you could just put whatever was going to make money out into the world and justify it morally or ethically because because ideas think of the ideas yeah if mike pence wanted to publish whatever he's going to publish he could do that tomorrow with an espresso book machine and 10 grand and take orders Mm -hmm. online garth brooks style take take a lesson from the from the the big g here the thing is, he's going to get a, he's, he's probably gotten a mid $10 million advance, five to $10 million advance, I guess, at least one, at least a seven figure advance. So really, Pence wants the platform and the prestige and the money that comes along with mm-hmm. the traditional book deal at this level, which is fine. And a lot of people want that. Doesn't mean you have to give it to him. And it doesn't mean that if he is, he needs to distribute PDFs um, that he's being censored. Now, what value add can the book publishing add to a larger discourse? I think is a question that is being asked and answered in in interesting and difficult ways. I mean, my own opinion goes back on this forth quite a bit because I I think when the Kennedy news came out, we were a little bit surprised, and we I think we both kind of turned around towards. I don't think I would want to be pen, publishing Pence's book myself, but mm-hmm. I can see a world if if you know it is a historical document. This person was a part of really complicated, important events. And maybe you can say part of the deal we're giving you is we're gonna give you a bunch of money and a profit share, but we're gonna go over this a little bit in a way that you can't and wouldn't probably do on your own if you're publishing it on um, pence.org or whatever you're gonna do. I'm not gonna storm the Bastille about that. And also, books get published. I mean, Woody Allen got a book deal. I mean, these things, these books, what, yeah. point to me and, the 10 books that you're like, oh my God, it's too bad they didn't come out. You know, I, Where are they? Will, what are they? I'd love to know this. Watch, yeah, we'll watch when the Mike Pence memoir comes out and see how it sells. And then we will see if the market really wants this product yeah. or not. Because I, I do think for the the main publishers that we're talking about, the big five and the, the, the other satellite companies that are, that represent the, the bulk of the Armada traditional publishing, their principal problem well, their principal obstacle to publishing whatever is not the market, it's their employees. I think we've seen that pretty clearly, right, Rebecca? That mm-hmm. it's not going to be that the bookstores aren't going to carry it or people aren't going to check out the library. It's going to be their rank and file line staffers and production people don't want to do that. They don't want to be a part of that whatever, and so they walk out. So it makes their is that censorship or is that the family kind of deciding amongst themselves what we believe in and what do we want to make? 
Right. It's the same as folks from Facebook who watched Facebook right. get information about election interference by the Russians in 2016 and reported it up the chain and then watched the folks up the chain do nothing about it. It's it's the same as those folks deciding to go public with their information, to talk to reporters or to leave the company because they see the company that they work for taking action that they believe is damaging to discourse mm. and damaging to democracy. And that is an exercise of freedom of speech, those employees making those kinds of statements or sharing that kind of information. It's, and this is the world that we live in now. Yeah. We have seen the public societal consequences of trying to pretend that you can have neutrality and trying to pretend that we'll just stay out of things and let the market decide what conversations it wants to have. But the market is made up of people. Yeah. <laughs> And the products are made by people. And those people are saying that they don't want to be part of producing these things because they don't want to be responsible for the outcomes. And that's an important thing to pay attention to. There's a whole raft of the kinds of books I could imagine, I don't know, maybe someone's not excited about, even if they ever were, that I would generally, this is, this is not what I'd like to know if, if anyone knows mm -hmm. about, that represent a kind of a nonfiction, science-y, psychological studies, academic, but like exploration, not just like a memoir or a political screed that is, has ideas and evidence and thoughts and theories that are uncomfortable to liberal orthodoxy. And I mean, I mean, capital L liberable. Maybe there are some of those that someone's like, you know, this thing about I'm just, that climate change is not as big of a deal mm -hmm. as the left thinks. But it, it has all the other hallmarks of, of a rigorous, legit. It doesn't have to be true. It doesn't have to be right. But just as part of the scientific discourse, like a popular science book that says, you know, the thing is, maybe it's not going to be so bad. Or maybe, I don't know. This isn't, these are not things I believe. But I could believe there, there could be manuscripts out there that are written with clarity and good faith and reasonable positions that present you know, a complicating view of something that is now part of a, a liberal platform. Now, especially today, right? Mansions on board and now climate change and the biggest things. Right. So that's, I mean, literally part of the mansion, West Virginian, the, the, the right center of the left is what's being represented there. Are there uncomfortable truths there? I could believe that, but I don't, I don't think that's what people are talking about when they're talking about these self-centering. Yeah. I, I really don't think that's what they mean, even though that'd be, the, so that'd be the piece I would be most interested to see. Because I do like to read things that challenge or present context or confounding factors to things I feel like for me are fairly, if not settled, then uncontested or un, um, or I feel like I know where I stand. You know, I, I kind of have a mental model sure. of where I am. I'd like to believe books like that, that can operate in good faith could get published, right? I don't know, you know, it's kind of hard to prove a negative or, or, to, or to disprove a negative. Like, are there books out there that are written by serious people who have done their homework and then some that would be hard for, I, I, we're kind of imagining another straw man of your, your average Twitter liberal soldier mm -hmm. that would get mad about. That's, that, that's maybe the, that's maybe where I could find some space to be like, I wonder if there's something going on here, but I'm kind of imagining a couple of different things that I have no evidence for. Yeah. So, Okay, let's do another sponsor, and then we'll come back to the liberal of all liberals when it comes to books and reading. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. 
So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Barack Obama, ever heard of him? I I think so. It's time again. Seems like an interesting guy. Can you tell that um, he was reading my suggestions I gave him on this list, Rebecca? <laughs> there are some O'Neill favorites. There are some Shinsky favorites here. I don't think I've ever seen a list where we have more... We could put more of our blanket over Obama's reading lap here. I mean, <laughs> I think you're I'm right. Just, I'm looking out. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen picks. I, I may have counted mm-hmm. one twice. And I've read myself one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them myself. And I know you've read two I've more. Read six of them. You've read Razor Blade Tears and. Um, Little Devil in America, right? So the, the whole list mm-hmm. is Sea of Tranquility, Velvet of the Night by Silva Marino Garcia, Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein, Mouth to Mouth by Antoine Wilson. Talk about a shout to Antoine Wilson. That was a book I no read. Kidding. You've heard me talk about this. I really like this little mm-hmm. book. Came out in January. I haven't seen anyone else talk about it. I God, I need to how the how does these book into his hands? <laughs> the Candy House, Jennifer Egan, The Great Experiment by Yasha Monk, I believe is how you say that that name. Mm-hmm. Little Devil in America by your boy Hanif um, Adurakib. School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. I also read that in January. To Paradise, Ever Heard of It by Hanyana Gahara. <laughs> Silverview by John Le Carre. Razorblade Tears by S.A. Crosby. Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. The Family Chow by Lan Samantha Chang. And then, interestingly, he's, he's, he's roped off just to make sure it's not a generally <laughs> recommendable book, but for Hoops fans, colon, Blood in the Garden, the Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks by Chris Herring. Obama's a huge basketball fan. 
Um, and that's a very fascinating time in basketball history, the, the 90s Knicks with Patrick Ewing and John Starks and Charles Oakley and some others. Um, I Is Obama coming towards me? Am I going to – why is it we've read so many <laughs> of these? Question. What's happening here? Is this something or nothing? I'm feeling like a little bit of existential vertigo about this list because the family chow and mouth-to-mouth are – are, they're like barely even mid-list, I would say, yeah. just as two examples. I think that these lists are getting more interesting yes. the longer that he is out of office. Yeah. When he was the president, we would see these lists and we would be like, these books are all good mm-hmm. <laughs> and they are all very safe. And I don't know that there's anything on here that I'm like, ooh, that's risky. But there's some edginess happening um like of course he's reading Ezra Klein yeah, yeah, of yeah. course he's reading the book the about why divorce democracies yeah, yeah, yeah. fall apart right but the Yanagahara is a big juicy mm-hmm. mess that you interesting yes. mess that you've talked Into about it. sea of Tran- sea of tranquility is arguably kind of weird it's not mainstream <laughs> And yeah. Little Devil in America, essays about blackness and black performance. These things make sense for what Obama's reading. I think it supports our theory from the Obama administration years that Barack's reading a lot more than he's putting on these lists. And I think the lists were just more sanitized, would be my guess. Maybe he's becoming an even wider ranging, more eclectic reader in the years since he left office. But I think if I had any, if I was just going to like call him up and ask... My bet slash hope would be, and he's like, oh, I've always read all kinds mm. of stuff. And, you know, we just had to, like, play it a little closer down the middle when I was the president, um, <laughs> <laughs> which it makes sense yeah. to me. But these are, I, I do think this is one of the more interesting of the Obama list that we've had. And not just because it overlaps with the things that we read, but because a lot of the stuff that you and I are both drawn to is kind of messy or there's something to chew on in it and it's not it's not like the Reese Witherspoon book of the month pick that is a crowd pleaser and interesting to see the variety of ideas and uh, stories that he's willing to go with because I remember when you talked about mouth to mouth you were like this is just a weird premise but I was really charmed by the book and I keep thinking about it and I like that Obama's intellectual interests are are that wide ranging yeah if you've got a plane ride ahead of you out there mouth to mouth is probably you know you could knock it out in a three hour or four hour cross-country flight it'll keep you engaged enough to keep the pages moving so you can forget that you're in a flying tube of um petri (laughs) air with uh, complete strangers (laughs) um hurtling towards destinations you probably don't want to go to or maybe are only halfway there already yeah i i don't know i i just had a lot of like either i'm is it is it is it him or me, and which one of those would make me happier? Uh, I guess some mm-hmm. of it is my front list um, experiment project. Oh, that's a good yielding point. results. Like in a normal year, maybe if I'd done this same kind of experiment in the last couple of years, the same kinds of books would show up. Like Sea of Tranquility, that's a big book, big author, marketing push. Booksellers know it. The strangest pick to me is probably, I think Mouth to Mouth is very small. No one knows who Antoine Wilson is, I don't think, to a first approximation. I think that's very strange. School for Good Mothers is a debut spec fic novel. The Family Child is like the fourth novel by Lan Samantha Chang. I think those are the two I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. And then Black Cake is, is, it was a buzzy debut. So that one I could a little, and then Yanni Gahara, that's a name, right? He's clearly a book right. person. I don't know if, 
Little Life was on one of these, but that's on everyone's radar that would even make a list that looks anything like this to at least read. Same with um, Candy House. And then the Klein, like you say, I think the Silva Marino Garcia is interesting. I don't, is that horror? That is interesting. Do you know off the top of your head what genre that she's writing in there? Oh, I think so, but she's one yeah, who moves I know. Genre. That's why I'm not she moves sure. around. It's hard to guess. Yeah. And then in Cosby um, is uh, genre, uh, which is really? interesting yeah. too. So genre, I think probably, you know, Egan is lit thick, high, high upmarket lit thick mm-hmm. for sure. There's not, I don't think any of these you would call commercial. It's interesting. He likes, you know, nonfiction he's interested in, which is kind of what everyone's interested in nonfiction. Very rarely do you have like a broad-based nonfiction hit unless it's like Breath Becomes Air, like a tearjerker kind of thing like that. And then genre and then upmarket lit fix seems to be is because Le Carre is spies, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, mouth yeah. to mouth is, I guess, the thriller, and then Velvet was the night. Whatever genre she's writing in, Marina Garcia tends to write in the genre, whether it's thriller or horror you or know, something else like that, fantasy. The Obamas are going to Audible. They've left. I think they're finishing yeah. their contract with Spotify. They're going to Audible, and this list really makes me want Barack Obama's book podcast. I don't here. I was. I had the same thought. Okay, using this. They're going to Audible, and Obama's going to do some kind of book-centered thing. What do you want it to be? Do you want it to be interviews? Okay. Do you want it to be, no. here, I just read this book. I'm going to give you three minutes on what I thought of it, and it's just, that's it? Or what do you, that's where I'm going for. I just want, I want his five minutes on Sea of Tranquility. I want his yeah. five minutes yeah. on why I, we're polarized. I am, while I'm sure that a conversation between, like, Barack Obama and Hadith Abdurraqib yeah. would be fascinating, and I would listen to the crap out of that, what I want from the Obama, the imaginary Obama book podcast really is just either somebody interviewing him each time about the book Mm -hmm. that he just read or like Barack and someone else having a book club conversation about one of these books. I'm sure he's a great interviewer. I'm not super interested in anybody doing big author interviews, although if I were going to listen to some of them, it would probably be the ones that Barack Obama did. (laughs) But I would be much more interested. I want to hear his like kind of uncensored thoughts about the candy house about to paradise. And I would like to hear him either just, you know, orate about those go into professor mode or be in conversation with someone else who also read the material and they can talk about it. But that's especially a list like this that it has a bunch of different stuff going on. I would love to know, first of all, the perpetual question, where does where? he get his, book how, what is this? What is happening? <laughs> I don't even know where he lives now. Yeah. Do you know where like he hangs his hat most nights? The Obamas are they? I, I, I have no still, idea. I think they still live in D.C. or yeah. maybe it's between D.C. and Chicago. Um, but yeah, who recommended each one of these to him, or did he wander into a bookstore in some city and was recommended the book? Does he have a wish list? On does he have, does he have an assistant that like? I'm, I mean, I know he has assistants and the whole staff, but like, is there someone who's like the connect? Like that, you know, who, or, like, I don't know what yeah, this is. is. Is there somebody on staff who reads the same kinds of things yeah. that he reads and they share books with each other the way that like you and I do? Hey, did you see this thing? I think it's in your wheelhouse. Where is it coming from? So I, that's, I think that's what I want the content of that podcast to be is him being like, here's how I came across this book. Here's what got me yep. interested in it. And here's what I thought about yeah, it. Yeah, I, and then if, good. yeah. I was saying, and then if they wanted to like trot the author out for a little conversation at the end, because that's great publicity mm. for anybody to go on Barack Obama's imaginary book podcast, I could be down with it, but I definitely want to know what he thinks about these things. Yeah, I, I kind of imagine the one I would most listen to, because I don't really want author interviews either myself, is the, he could take Frontless Foyer. He can take it if he wants mm-hmm. it. 
And each episode is him and maybe rotating guests, and they talk about the books they've read recently and what they like for 25 sure. minutes. I would listen to that every week. I'm sure I'd find stuff yep. um, to do really well. Or have we overthought this, Rebecca? Bear with me. Conspiracy, <laughs> conspiracy Jeff's in the house, just for a second. Oh, good. So Barack Obama's got more time. We know he likes podcasts because he's made some. <laughs> he's on there. And his, you think Barry's out there listening? Wait, hold on a second. And the list looks like this. It's not impossible that he listens to the show. Is it 0.01 or 0.02% chance that he got picked up mouth to mouth? Because you know what? That, that Jeff's, that, he pitched the, canceled the shit out of that book. I'm picking up mouth to mouth. Wouldn't that be hilarious? You know, it would be amazing. Book Riot's got some, I mean, we've got some reach. Yep. And I think... As much as I would love to know that Barack Obama is listening to our show, I would be. We can't know. We don't want to know. It's impossible. He's not. No, no. If he is, no one tell me. And there's no way. I'm just kidding. But there (laughs) is there is an element of it. Wouldn't it be funny? Maybe maybe somebody who knows him, maybe somebody who works for him is familiar with ye old book riot and is tossing some of these things his way. Well, someone to hold on. You know, our show's not big enough. Like if it was ten times as big, maybe you could understand it. Because I listened to the Ringers podcast recently where they did a mm-hmm. movie draft and like Tarantino's a huge fan. So they did a movie draft with Tarantino. That would right, be kind right. of the equivalent, right? And that's a big show, but it's not like Marin or something like that. It's it's not one of these giant yeah. shows. And that's kind of one of the amazing things about podcasts. If you can find the right niche, you know, you can you can find people that, that get into it. I'd love to know. I've always wanted to know. You've heard us talk at length. Um, if we ever do a kind of show where we try to get guests I don't even need the big B.O. here. I just want the guy who knows the guy. I just want, who's the handler? I almost would rather talk to the handler in some ways than Obama. I know. I mean, or or maybe it's just, that's the kind of thing that it feels more um, achievable. But uh, what, what, I can't believe, I can't, does he do a year end list? Because now my game is, I want to do is, what does the next look like? Can I guess five of the 14? Is that possible? I think we should work that into our fall draft conversation because the fall book season is looking pretty juicy. And he usually he does read a lot of front list and his end of year lists do tend to have some of the bigger lit fic titles, especially of the year. And we're going to see a lot of those in September and October. Yes, we should take a part of the draft because maybe we'll need to have read them. And by the draft time, I won't have read. Mm. So maybe it's like a Patreon episode in the doldrums of December, like getting ready, guessing Obama's. Mm-hmm. Best of 2022. I have to go the back Black and Friday. Yeah, kind of something like mm-hmm. that. Because here's the thing: even the ones I've read, would I have picked these? <sighs> that's that's trickier. That's trickier. I also want to know his recommendation rate. I talked before. I like to only recommend one out of ten. If he's recommending one out of ten, he's a Canadian, as far as I can tell, in terms <laughs> of his reading velocity at this point. <laughs> Hell of a job. Um, all right. You want to catch anything else before we, we, we go? Do you want to do this Gone Girl cruise? This sounds like a good idea. What, what The chance of getting murdered on a Gillian, a Gillian friend Gone Girl cruise is what? Is it higher or lower than Obama listening to our show? Yeah. This was just my eyebrows went all the way up. And then a, a couple people texted me like, oh, please tell me that, you're, that you've seen this and that you guys are going to talk about this on the show. I saw our contributor core kind of go wild about it on Slack earlier this week. A cruise company called Avalon Waterways has a gone girl cruise and the slack was probably what you can imagine of people being like so like 
people die or <laughs> only <laughs> what it's like happens? it's like it's like kind of maybe it's meta like it's for fans of Gone Girl and like a murder happens so it's like instead of only murders in the building it's like only abductions on the dock I don't know what's or going on or it's like here. the cruise version of those murder mystery dinner parties yes, or something right. like that it turns out it, it is just a cruise that Gillian Flynn happens to be going on uh it's eight days from Budapest to Degendorf and like she will be there and doing stuff there's programming so if you are a big Gone Girl Gillian Flynn fan you can go on this cruise I guess just coincidentally I'm a subscriber to Cheryl Strade's newsletter and the one she sent out this week was like hello from the Danube River cruise that I am doing and I clicked on it and it's also with Avalon Waterways so this I have not had time to go deep into what Avalon Waterways is about, but they're doing at least two cruises that are built around authors that they assume people want to come hang out with. I just thought as the content of Gone Girl makes it hilarious yeah. to be like, come on a cruise with us. Gillian Flynn seems very normal, so I'm sure it's fine, yes. but it is very strange. And to talk about striking while the iron is cold. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like we just did the tenth anniversary Maybe, of the Gone Girl I, I, movie. I know, it was ten years ago. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, and I guess so, Rebecca. You have to, so you've made some sort of unfortunate deal where you must go on a cruise <laughs> that's centered on a one particular author's fandom. Oh, so I have to be there with the author and, and their all fans their fans for eight days on an oh. Eastern European river. Oh my God, Jeff! The internet's going to get mad at me, but I don't want to be trapped in a confined vessel with any group of people that are diehard enough fans to go on a cruise for so that's author. a really good point I, t- I reject the whole premise <laughs> yeah i just know yeah just know <laughs> I, I i i i thought up this question as we were talking so i don't have a good answer let's save this for a future um segment <laughs> best and worst author <laughs> fandoms to take on a cruise um probably the Brene Brown crew would be fine to be around, but at the end, are you sure you're not wanting to jump off the boat? Right. right? That's like, a, a, I think that every one of the options is a particular flavor of insufferable yes. by the end of the week. The the most sufferable fandom that could fill a boat. It's a very hard question. <laughs> I'm like, this is not a knock on the concept of fandom, no. but my relationship to fandom is that I just don't really do it. <laughs> yes. No, that's true. Maybe the Michael Lewis cruise. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Where like you you, you do some methodology corner yeah. over dinner. Right. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Can maybe. What's the one about quiet? Susan Cain? How about the introverts cruise? <laughs> That'd probably be all right. That sounds great. <laughs> sounds pretty good. <laughs> Two minutes for Frontless Foyer. Anything you want to shout? Oh, yes, I do want to shout. I just read Parish by LaToya Watkins, which is coming out. Oh, I I have this on my list. It's not out yet. Okay, tell me about it. It's good. Yeah, it comes out in August. It's the first title from Phoebe Robinson's uh, Little Reparations, Tiny Tiny Reparations Reparations. books, which is her imprint. It is good. It is also all the trigger warnings from page one. Okay. It's good and really difficult. It's about a family in Texas that has a generational pattern of child sexual abuse and all of the things that can come out of that, all of the sort of outcomes and consequences of trauma. So the book opens with the family tree and then you spend time back and forth through basically the 20th century and up until the present day with members of 
three, maybe four generations, all of whom experience some kind of incest, sexual trauma by a member of their family or a parent. It is on the page. Mm. It is very difficult. It is also just a hell of a book. It's incredibly good and incredibly challenging. And I had the like, it took me forever because I was like, oh, this is a lot. I got to like take a lot of deep breaths and take some space away from it. But the writing is phenomenal. Hmm. I think she's an incredible new voice. I don't know who you recommend that book to. Like you got to really know the person well Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be like, this is a book for you to read because it's not fun by any stretch, but it is a, I thought I found it to be a really valuable read and just incredible writing um, really and bold Mm. uh, in terms of going to the places that she goes. And I think bold of Phoebe Robinson and I think it's Penguin Random House um, that Tiny Reparations is at to support a voice doing that, a, a new voice without an established audience it is something mm. very good, but real tough. Okay, so it sounds like it falls into the post-traumatic kind of hard to wreck, but if you can find the right person or you can saddle up to mm-hmm. do it, mm-hmm. um, it's a turn my head with talk of summertime time for me, which means baseball. Okay, um, mm. I'm quoting Andrew Lloyd Webber now. So I'm so sorry. For <laughs> I also would not want to be on a cruise with Andrew Lloyd Webber fans. Um, the Church of Baseball by Ron Shelton, which is about the making of Bull Durham, one of my 20 oh, favorite yes. movies of all time. And I, I didn't know much about the making of it, though I should have suspected, because they tie someone up and read Walt Whitman. It's about baseball, <laughs> and it's about poetry and books. So, of course, I liked it. Like, wh- of course. When I, was a, when I was a tween teenager, I cared about, like, four things. Baseball, uh, books, Funyuns, and Nintendo games. <laughs> Didn't peg you for a Funyuns man. Well, you know, you're you're young. Funyuns and Mountain Dew. Michelle and I's kind of quasi first date was based on a bet around Funyuns and Mountain Dew. I'll tell you that story sometime offline. Mm-hmm. And so I always liked the book, the the, the movie, always liked the movie. The movie came out in 88, so I was a little young to see it. So I didn't see it later until I was as a teenager. But I've always wondered how this book came to happen. Ron Shelton is the author of the book who also wrote and directed the movie, who himself was a minor league ball player. Um, and there's a lot of wonderful nuggets. I don't want to spoil them all. I'm kind of now just telling you the things I didn't text you, Rebecca. So I'm sorry, everyone mm-hmm, else. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why they're here. <laughs> Who knows? A um, couple of things I think you would like especially. So Ron Shelton, when he got the deal, this was his first time directing. He had written another movie starring Gene Hackman. But this was a real thing to get going. It was a passion project for him. And when he got the deal, he brought on as his first assistant his college English professor, which I think is so charming. <laughs> it's amazing stuff. And there's a line in there where um, one of Michelle's favorite quotes from the movie is, don't you think that's a little excessive for the Carolina League? So anytime we're dressed up, we're like, you know, if we feel like we're a little, we're out of our <laughs> uh-huh. depth or someone else is, she says that. <laughs> Shelton asks his professor, like, I, forgive me, I can't remember his name. It's like, do you have any quotes that, that she can use as a comeback, right? Because Costner's basically saying to Sarandon, you're too much, which of course she is. And her line, mm-hmm. her response is, the path to wisdom is through the temple of excess by William Blake. And, he, mm-hmm. and the professor just mm-hmm. had that on the spot, and it went into the script, and that's Love there. That. Love that there. Um, Shelton himself is a book nerd. Fantastic stuff. My, my favorite antidote for you, this is sort of Kevin Costner as the icon of the baseball movie and our affection for Fields mm-hmm. of Dreams especially, is Costner had just, Untouchables had just come out, which was a huge smash hit. And so this is his first movie after Untouchables. 
And so at this point, he does. He would be offer only, which means he doesn't have to audition for a place. You you want right. Costner, you you offer him the part of the money, whatever. So Shelton meets with Costner at a diner somewhere, and and Costner's like, "So do you want me to? So should we do the audition now?" And Shelton's like, "What are you talking <laughs> oh, about?" Bless. It's like I know, and and it's not about the acting. Costner wanted to prove to Shelton that he could um, credibly be a baseball player. Apparently, Costner mm. played high school. And both Shelton and Costner happen to have baseball gloves with balls in the trunks of their cars. <laughs> so they go out to the parking lot and play. want to have a catch. And they play catch in the parking oh. lot. And then within, Perfect. and Shelton says, you know, within two throws, you can tell if someone can play baseball. Like not at a pro level, but, you know, they open mm-hmm. their shoulder, they look fluid or whatever. And so they were playing catch in the, in the parking lot of a diner um, to I show. So there you go. That's, uh, I, I, I really liked it on audio. It's a perfect kind of thing. Shelton also wrote and directed White Man Can Jump and Tin Cup and some other stuff, too. There's a lot of interesting making of stuff and casting and the writing. But he's a book nerd, a lot of literary references, just, just delightful, delightful, delightful. I would read, I've said this before, I would do this with any kind of cultural document I care about. I've done it with Back mm-hmm. to the Future. I've done it with The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done, I, I, is there a Sister Act one? Did the Sister Act writer-director oh, do a memoir? Not, there was a good um, oral history of Clueless a couple of years oh, ago that I really enjoyed. Yeah, that's a nice one. But this was really wonderful. And uh, it's kind of maybe the ultimate dad kind of audiobook experience about yes. baseball. His dad... Shelton's own dad was a jazz musician. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on there, but I I was I, I went through I read it in like two days. Every single second I could find to cram it in in this heat wave we're having in the Northwest felt appropriate for the Church of Baseball and the that Durham Bulls. So that's perfect. me. Wonderful. We're we're hitting that midsummer moment where I was just telling Bob the other night, like I think it's Field of Dreams time. Open the I windows. I think we're there. Yeah. Start playing it about 6.30 so the lights are coming on as the movie is ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the light situation is in Virginia this time of year, but it stays late. It stays light here yeah. pretty late. Yeah, it's, it's it's time for that. We have it. The other thing I was thinking about, we have Would Bull Durham qualify as a um, good um, Adaptation Nation book nerd movie hour watch along at some point? Does it have enough think- literary bona fides to matter? Well, I guess we have to rewatch it to decide. But you're saying like I haven't do... just done that last night. But that's a separate. That's a separate <laughs> question. We're we're going to do a um, Dead Poets Society in, in September, yeah. which we've been talking about doing forever. So I'm really excited to get there. And that's I mean that's a little more directly literary yeah. than Bull Durham is. But I think we can make the case. We've also talked about doing You've Got Mail, and that's just about a bookstore, right? So... Yeah, that's fair. But this one is. I guess Annie, Susan Stranding character's name is Annie. She's a community college English teacher. It probably okay. has as much actual poetry in it as any movie I know of that's not actually about a poet, like, you know, Bright I Star. I think that's all we need. Kids. Also, it's our podcast. If you would like not to do it, you don't have to listen to it. Get your own podcast about books and vaguely related movies. Maybe someday you two can speculate about whether Barack Obama's advisors are listening to your show. Well, that's maybe more likely. Is that it's not it's not the big man himself. Yeah. Right. No. Still unlikely. I think we're up to point zero three percent at this point. Rebecca, thank you as always. Show notes bookwrite.com slash listen. Check out the editorial ops job we're looking for. Um, also I would love to hear your uh, you all out there, if you have birdies about books that, you know, frankly would would contribute to a discourse in a in a productive way that have been What's it called? Had, had chilling effect? Have been frozen out rather go. than self-censored, maybe? 
Um, and then also, which authors' fandoms you would most or least <laughs> likely to spend eight days on a European river with? Eight days is a long cruise, Jeff. It's a long time. It's a long time. Rebecca, thank you as always. Thank <laughs> you.